Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Uh, Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which feels indeed so long ago that in those days, Sherlock Holmes was still hunting down the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes, and I was Mrs. Hudson, (laughs) (laughs) running and getting your tea and your breakfast that you wouldn't eat. This week, we're doing Line of Duty, inspired by season six's recent airing and finale. Line of Duty began in 2012 and follows the story of AC-12, a police anti-corruption unit somewhere in the north of England. They bust extraordinarily violent criminals and deal with psychotic colleagues, but never quite manage to crack the whole story, which is all about layer upon layer of corruption in the force and above. It's created by Jed Mercurio, a former doctor and now lauded as the can-do-no-wrong king of British televisual crime. I should add, Zoe, that it's been a huge popular success, of course. Uh, It's been estimated that 15.24 million people watched the final episode, which makes it the most watched episode of the entire 21st century, I think, Uh, at least for the BBC. I mean, it puts it up there with things like the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special, Although many people will appreciate that it has not been well received, this final episode, um, the eye, I think, captured a general sense of dissatisfaction uh, that it was, quote, a climax that sagged beneath the weight of the show's mythology. Um, And we'll no doubt talk a little bit more in a minute about how far there was a sense of kind of bathos or letdown. Um, Before we get there, though, I suppose just to start us off, I suppose it's interesting thinking about the kind of topicality of Line of Duty. Jed Mercurio does try very hard to try and make these police dramas sort of touch on a variety of other issues that we've seen related to the police. Uh, I mean, this is written against a backdrop, I think, of growing paranoia about corrupt policing. Um, It very openly plays with things like the legacy of the Stephen Lawrence case, You know, and you might remember the famous sort of McPherson inquiry and so on. And there are moments in this series that quite clearly echo that case. And there's also been all this controversy recently looking back on the role of undercover police. Um, And in fact, a lot of the previous season was all about infiltration um, and how the police are kind of, you know, putting undercover agents in that might be behaving unethically. So I suppose Jed Mercurio tries to make the series compelling by making you think that you're looking at the police as they actually are, that you're kind of, you know, taking off the mask um, and getting a kind of better glimpse at the sort of hidden or secret bits um, of police life. Um, What do you make, Zoe, about the kind of relationships at the core of it? Well, I mean, before going on to relationships, um, I just want to circle back uh, to this business about feeding off of some of the contemporary concerns about police and and policing. And I think what was sort of masterful about the series up until this point was that it wasn't too obvious. It did feel like an alien or exotic police 
force really that was in this drama so it didn't feel like it was just mapping onto whatever is in Britain today and I think that's what gave it actually quite an unheimlich feeling it gave it a sort of compelling aura I think all the episodes until now because we tend to think of the British police as being actually quite uncorrupt we are one of the least corrupt countries in the world and obviously corruption in police is one of the main areas that you would measure that so the idea of an AC12 you know the viewer is constantly thinking oh but we wouldn't really have something like that here would we so the fact that there is all that corruption going on that does seem a bit out of sync with what's actually going on or at least is left loosely in relation to what's going on in Britain at the time I think was really effective it was similar enough to tap into some anxieties about or what was going on with police but was also sort of darker and more sinister than anything that most of us would recognize as the police in Britain today This series, I think, went off the track a bit by trying to be relevant in the way that so many things try to do now. So it went a bit tokenistic, I think, and it bringing Mm. in that sort of Stephen Lawrence-esque case where, you know, a historic um, police cover up of a case involving people who murdered this black character, uh, very similar to, to Stephen Lawrence. It just, in a way, in trying to map too closely onto to something that was both zeitgeisty and real, it really kind of lost its dramatic interest to me. So onto the relationships. Well, Tom, why don't you why don't you tell me what you had in mind? What kind of relationships do you think underpin Line of Duty, and, and what is it about them that is compelling? Because on the surface, they're they're sort of quite unsexy relationships, aren't they? I'm going to also circle back for a second, Zoe, just to say I agree with you, obviously, about how it misplayed the politics. It's worth thinking about how in previous series they've also tried to deal with um, echoes of the Jimmy Savile inquiry. And it's just reminded me that there is all of that uh, discussion in previous series about how the police covered up sort of child abuse scandals and so on. Um, And I suppose the other interesting thing about the topicality is the relationship between the police and politicians, which is also being pushed much more in this series. And I was interested that as it was airing, bits of Line of Duty were turning up on the front pages of the tabloid press. You know, when Dominic Cummings uh, was briefing against Johnson and there was the whole discussion about the chatty rat, the Sun couldn't resist doing a front page that said, you know, Hastings is needed to get to the bottom of this. So there is a weird way in which, you know, a lot of uh, the discourse at the moment suggests a kind of broader culture of corruption, a broader culture of sleaze, that the police have got all these systemic institutional problems. Um, and Line of Duty certainly wants to suggest, uh, indeed, this kind of entangled web of corruption that we get replicated and we get sort of echoed back to us um, in some of the tabloid coverage. Uh, as, for the, as for the relationships, um, I think unsexy is a very good word, Zoe. I mean, what's striking is that you see so little of these people outside of their work setting. Um, and whereas, you know, so many other classic dramas have had the sort of obsessed detective, I'm thinking of somebody like Morse, um, you know, who obviously lives for the job, but has a tragic life outside. In this, you actually hardly ever see anything beyond the life outside. I mean, there's the slightly tacky relationship that Hastings has had with Jill Bigelow. Um, We see that Steve is obviously having to self-medicate in order to get through. Uh, These are people who live for the job. And so all they have is this sort of frail little bond of friendship and, you know, and that kind of buddy routine between Kate and Steve um, and between them and the gaffer is the only real humanity that you that you see in the show. So it's a very sort of microscopic focus, I suppose. Like Jed Mercurio is not interested in making these people three-dimensional characters and exploring their lives beyond the office. 
it's all about the office. Well, I disagree a tiny bit because I think actually they do come across as three-dimensional and the kind of workaholic is a figure that is going to be recognizable to a lot of people full stop, but especially within the genre of the thriller, like if you think of the killing and the bridge mm. and all those amazing Scandinavian ones, these women are completely consumed with um, with their work and there's literally nothing beyond it, but, but there is a little bit beyond it. And that little bit beyond it is always fascinating. So while it is sad, you know, Hastings and Jill or Steve's issues, um, or, you know, or Steph, or Kate's, you know, failed marriage and stuff, you do get these glimpses, which I think do sort of support this um, emotional infrastructure, mm. which then adds potency to the work they carry on. And I think actually does overlay the relationship with some genuine weight, for instance, that one between Kate and uh, Steve, which has to bear so much weight, really. So I, I actually think that their workaholism becomes a kind of pathos that in, then informs and strengthens their relationship, which is interesting precisely because it is this friendship. It's also a working relationship. It's male, female. At the end there, you got the, the, you know, some people were posing the question when, I think it's when Steve says he's got, or Kate says she's got no one and Steve says, you've got me, mate. Or maybe it's the other one. They both say mate to each other so much, it's hard to know who's talking <laughs> to who. But that some people do think, okay, is there maybe the glimmer of, of a romance uh, there? Although people have been very critical about the Steve um, Kate relationship in this um, series because it, it just does it is a little bit sort of almost too bare but I think what I find interesting about the this friendship that is really at the core of Line of Duty the Steve Kate is just like it is so plain I mean it really is mm. cheers mate I mean mate is pretty much the only word they say to each other and yet I think the pathos of Steve especially is so strong he's injured he's reduced you know in his quiet way to, to being addicted to painkillers there's something to say there about masculinity, impotence. So there's a sort of Steve as, as a completely broken man, but it's in a very old style kind of broken man, which frankly I find quite refreshing. So he's not going to therapy and airing all of his troubles in tears all the time. You know, he's, in, he's quietly breaking inside, but medicating. And then he's sort of quietly dealing with the impotence, which is the result of his injuries and stuff. So there's a, there's a broken masculinity there. Hastings has had a disastrous personal mm -hmm. life. There's a kind of brokenness there too. The women are always portrayed as being stronger and more uh, resilient um, and also more sexually in charge. I mean, Steve seems to be it a funny kind of Adonis, Kate jokes that every woman he comes across, he kind of ends up having a, an affair with, but he's not, it's, it's more like you feel that Steve needs it. It's almost a Freudian thing, desperate for comfort. So I think, I actually think that while the, the sexlessness is interesting and it is a buddy drama, I don't think workaholism and their complete life within the job and having a very minimal life outside the job actually renders them two dimensional. I think it, it actually, they, they are still three dimensional within those slightly kind of straightened and, and depressing uh, limits. I, I totally agree, Zoe, actually. And I didn't want to imply that they're less realised because it's only about the work. But it's just, it's just telling that Mercurio resists any temptation to, see, to let you see Kate as mother, for instance. That's something that's nearly always sort of off screen. Just picking up on what you said about um, gender and, you know, Steve is a broken man. I have to say one of the other brilliant things that Line of Duty is known for is the writing for women. And if you look back over the past few seasons, a lot of the most brilliant adversaries of AC12 have been these outstanding female actresses. You know, back to Keely Hawes, who, as Lindsay Denton, I think is still the best thing almost she's ever done on television. Um, I thought it was a completely fascinating portrayal of a woman who was, you know, borderline psychotic throughout the whole thing. And you couldn't read what her relationship with them was. 
through to Tandy Newton, through to the wonderful um, Anna Maxwell Martin as Patricia Carmichael. There's a lot of very interesting representations of women with authority and how it makes the men around them bristle. And I suppose one of the things that was disappointing, let's say this time round, is that our female adversary, the sort of Kelly MacDonald character, just became, I thought, less and less interesting as it went on, rather than this sort of brilliant game of cat and mouse that had characterized the previous series where, you know, who's an ally, who's an enemy, there's all of this sort of careful psychological investigation going on. And she's presented at the end fundamentally as a victim. And, you know, that's not satisfying. Like, you know, you want a little bit more complexity. What did you think about some of the sort of failings of the the finale and actually the broader season six? Well, I think, um, Tom, you have put it well in the past or in the in the distant past since it aired. Um, <laughs> that it's a bit of a victim of its own success in the sense that, you know, as you say, like the tabloids were using line of duty paradigm to convey actual news about our prime minister, which is just shows that it's become something other than just a TV show. It's it's crept into, I don't know what the word for it would be, worldview, national treasure, maybe. Um, <laughs> but within that or alongside that, could say it's been reduced to a set of catchphrases. You know, every I read lots of the threads um that journalists wrote after each um episode. And you know, there's a lot of there's a whole genre of of, of line of duty spoofing and joking and sweet mother of God, you know, one of Hastings's <laughs> and his and his general kind of metaphorical wildness it is like completely now part and parcel of, of how we even talk about line of duty. It's become a thing. It's quite meta. We talk about it as a set of it's produced a whole set of kind of funny linguistic tropes um, quite aside from the story itself. So but I think, you know, victim of his own success, what that really boils down to is that what dazzled us for the first five seasons, especially the first three or four. It was just so, you know, it was formally inventive. It was mm. wild in terms of the actual plots. You really, the, the levels of criminality and, and horror were astonishing. It was very hard to follow, but the characters were fascinating. And, you know, clearly this season completely lost its edge. It was like they ran out of money in real life as well as in AC12. So they were repeating the same <laughs> things, you know, people getting, you know, inter- like ambushed on the way from the prison and, and really this whole very complicated thing of this this conspiracy of or with organized between organized crime and the police and politicians. Um, you know, that was such a fascinating, all-consuming, perfect sort of thing to to set up because you the point of a conspiracy is that you can assume, you know, there's no end to it. I mean, you you begin to doubt that the people pursuing it are sane. I mean, that was always the interesting thing about it. And then in season six, it just collapsed under its own complexity and weight. And and you know, it just I thought the ending was just crap. I mean, we we didn't want a sort of moral lesson on how sometimes in the end the baddie is just the most banal idiot, greed motivated by greed, last man standing. No, we wanted like a, you know, it would have been more interesting if Hastings had turned out to be H. This wasn't the time for a life lesson, but you did slightly feel that Mercurio had run out of options. Where else could he go? He'd set up such a fantastic um, conspiracy. How to bring, how to kind of conclude it. Everyone had died. How, what was his next move? I don't know. What do you think, Tom? No, I, I completely agree. And I have read things that have compared Jed to Ted, you know, the, the kind of the <laughs> Ted, <laughs> Ted Hastings <laughs> getting more and more kind of bewildered, frustrated, uh, you know, the Jesus, Mary, Joseph and the wee donkey. Can we just yeah. move this thing along before yeah. it drives us all around the bloody bend? As Ted says at one point, is this Mercurio's own dilemma that he's, you say, he'd set up this, this monster that he couldn't find a way to, to kind of bring together and he couldn't control. And so he settled on this, you know, 
not a bang but a whimper this kind of you know banality of evil you know the buckles reveal at the end of this was deeply disappointing um what i would say it had the thrills but i think it had lost a lot of the brains of the previous series in that you know it still had the set pieces um there was some as you say kind of exciting action sequences and it's worth remembering that mercurio is the guy who wrote the bodyguard and so he can do these real kind of nail biter sequences um but I thought sort of intellectually uh, it, it wasn't very satisfying. Um, and I think some of that is to do with the fact that, you know, it, a lot of what made it formally so interesting in the earlier seasons was also getting stretched a, big a bit thin. It was being reduced, as you say, to a set of Tedisms, as they're known. It did just become catchphrases and sort of eye rolls to the camera. Um, could we say a little bit about, you know, thinking about the happier side of Line of Duty, could we say a little bit about what was the secret of its success. Um, I do think some of that is to do with this never defined sort of strange kind of unspecified Midlands stroke Northern location. Um, I mean, we know that bits of it were filmed in Birmingham. We know that this season, lots of it was filmed in Belfast, but there's something about the texture of it that feels like any other grimy English provincial town that there's a, it's precisely because it isn't glamorized um, other than the kind of action sequences. It's precisely because it's humdrum, I think that makes it weirdly riveting or makes it kind of weirdly compelling. But this is a very particular genre of TV that Line of Duty's invented, not just procedural, but just dreary. You know, this is mm. dreary Britain, not flashy London. There are quite a few non-London thriller, sort of police thrillers, but, but many of them are set in London. And if you think about the Scandi ones, they're set in Copenhagen or Malmo, you know, real cities. Mm. So I think setting it in the most mashup hinterland of dreary northernness, which is obviously filmed in Belfast, but takes place somewhere around Liverpool. And there's no period buildings. It's all, it's all sort of office parks. I mean, <laughs> shitty new builds. I mean, that is the world of, of Line of Duty. And, and it goes with this proceduralism. Sorry, Tom. No, I was going to say underpasses was all I was going to yeah. add as an as a sort of architectural form that, you know, this idea of, you know, um, Steve and Kate hanging out. They hang out a lot of the time in an underpass. Underpasses, um, car parks, and then, of course, a seemingly endless amount of prisons. So it's just like it's just <laughs> a bizarre, it's a very horrible, horrible, cold unlovely landscape that I think actually is a crucial part of the of this character's workaholism uh, where they just seem to live between the these dreary offices and these dreary landscapes and you sort of think well of course they don't have a life you know outside of that even the pubs they meet at are sort of unbelievably mm. terrible kind of chain pub but then I think there's just one other small point that I wanted to make about this season and it's just that they're you know speaking of the formalism of it or at least just the quality of it was that there just wasn't that much policing and you know we were asking ourselves the question tom did kate and steve actually do any work because it all seems <laughs> to be done by chloe the junior detective who seems to just find everything so the way it worked this season in sharp contrast to the other ones was hey chloe can you find this out and then they drive around looking glum half an hour later a phone call chloe i found everything you're looking for and have advanced the case by about a million miles i mean that's that's kind of the way it works the proceduralism is something that is just one of the most bizarre and, and unique things about it because I am, like anyone, not a fan of boring PowerPoint presentations and I don't find offices that gripping of a scene, uh, modern offices. And yet I was completely gripped. So, you know, nobody even understands the kind of evidence they're presenting or the way they're presenting it. But yet we love the sound of that interview alarm going off um, mm. before they do their interviews. 
we love the sort of exhibit A, exhibit B. Can you identify the person? And this, you know, it's somehow gripping. Tom, how do you think he managed to make it gripping? Why is it gripping? What is this saying about our society today that we that we love this stuff? Well, I think it's partly a sort of, as I say, the kind of weird realism, like sort of a documentary style realism that you're getting a glimpse at how you imagine the police might operate. Um, I think there's a definitely a Scandi influence here. You talked about sort of Scandinavian crime. And I recently watched this thing called The Investigation, uh, which, you know, and I like a slow burn, but this to me really was slow, but it was about the, the famous murder that happened on the submarine being restaged over five hours, six hours. And it was literally just about watching police work. So there's something funny going on where you've got almost like a hyper real version of drama where like drama is actually just walking through what happened um, in often, you know, that involves a lot of whiteboards and PowerPoints and, and photocopies. I mean, there's, there's weirdly very little visual delight in it. And yet there's something about watching people think or like watching, you know, and encouraging people to kind of think through the case um, that viewers find satisfying. Um, I'm not a deep line of duty fan, but Mercurio is also clearly now writing for the armies of people who he knows are watching every single frame. Um, one thing I discovered he did, and I don't really know this, Zoe, is that in the trailer for the series, um, there's a moment where you get a glimpse of a magazine um, featuring the, the murdered journalist, Kale Vella, and also there's a barcode. And if you used your phone on the barcode that you saw in the trailer of Line of Duty, you got access to a secret email supposedly sent by one of the police kind of super insurgents. So there's all of these Easter wow. eggs, as they're called. You know, there are these rewards for watching closely, for kind of sleuthing along with them um, that has made the bureaucracy kind of, you know, weirdly tantalizing. Um, but I agree with you. I think like the secret of the great series has been the cross-examination. And it has been when you've had a whole episode that's just three people in a room and this brilliant kind of game of cat and mouse and waiting for the mask to slip. And part of the problem with making the ultimate villain in this a kind of basically badly dressed, sort of cynical, but essentially pretty stupid kind of criminal means that you never get that sense of unmasking and you never really get that sense that they're dueling sort of mentally and intellectually with an equal. Tom, just wanted to turn it now to the sense of hopelessness, but also the sort of spiritual and moral tone and register of Line of Duty, because again, that that's also quite um, distinctive. So you know, to me, there's, there's a sort of, it goes with the location, this, this hopelessness that the sense, in, sense that these good things in the world are losing funding, AC-12, the sort of David and Goliath, it's being shut down the good the noble fight is getting harder and harder to do does this point to something bigger what i think what you've even referred to as a spiritual drama or a sort of battle within what do you mean by that tom what, what do you mean by a spiritual drama about police and politicians maybe i'm overreading kind of hastings and the northern irish dimension but i don't know line of duty to me seems something that's almost haunted by the idea of civil war somehow or a kind of inner conflict um, it's telling, I think, that you hardly ever see members of the OCG, you know, apart from you know, the organized crime. Duty. That's the thing. You fall into using acronyms, even talking about line of duty. Um, apart from the famed Tommy Hunter, we never really actually get to see the bad guys. It's all just a set of kind of balaclavas. The only bad guys that we really see are the police who've gone bad or the lawyers who've gone bad. And so because it's about anti-corruption, it's much more about how compromised individuals are 
And as a result, you feel like it's to do with the sort of battle between good and evil within the heart of all of these individuals. It's a kind of, you know, heart of darkness, dare I say. It's about the tipping point in which otherwise kind of virtuous people um, or people who join the force with the best of motives are sucked into something much darker. Um, so I do think it has a quite sort of bleak, uh, kind of hopeless uh, quality to it. And even our three favorite characters at various moments, we wonder whether one of them, as you say, is going to be H. Are they going to be tarnished? Um, and so I do think it picks to a much bigger picture of the kind of the fallenness of man, dare I say, that there's something about the kind of corruptibility of all of us that, that gives the show some of its sort of moral energy. One thing you get an impression of is that corruption is a sort of bottomless, sort of infinite beast that you have to fight against, sort of hydra-like. Each time that they strike off one head, another two grow back. Um, and, I, and I sort of feel that the, the sort of, again, the problem with the kind of Kelly McDonald character is that she became, you know, less and less interesting, especially by the end when it's a story about coercive control and she's just been duped by other people. She kind of struggles to kind of live up to that sense of a kind of all-encompassing darkness that is the thing that draws you into Line of Duty, the belief that somewhere... You know, you, you're recessing mm. deeper and deeper into the heart of the mystery. She's not a very satisfying portal. You get kind of pulled in. Do you want to say something, Zoe, just in closing about why shows like Line of Duty or, you know, or how shows like Line of Duty speak to bigger kind of interests in crime drama? What's going on in terms of how people think about detectives or why there's such an appetite for these crime shows? Well, I mean, it's interesting because on one hand you have these heritage cozy um revivals you've got the christie all over tv um agatha christie you've got lots of morse you've got endeavor that kind of evokes a, an england past not always so distant but still and then you get sort of this other genre which line of duty kind of carved out of the quite contemporary hard-nosed nothing cozy about it and I, I don't know. I mean, I sometimes think, I suppose the ancient Greeks said that, didn't they? The darker the things we turn to, the more we're looking for escapism from really quite boring lives or, or lives that are leaving us unsatisfied. So I think that, you know, the last season obviously corresponds to, to the last year, which has been a pandemic year. But but more widely, I think the, the, the kind of atomization and confusion and incoherence of a digital world. Maybe we have less experiences somehow. Maybe maybe there's something ever more gripping about, about something that is partly recognizable to all of us, i.e. the kind of world of bureaucracy and office culture, but then has this kind of deeply satisfying kind of criminal side to it. So, I mean, that's a kind of general thought about why the thriller and crime genre is so incredibly appealing. I mean, in terms of thinking about the future of crime drama, we've come from crime that's focused all about rape. We've had like, plenty mm -hmm. of iconic detectives. What's interesting about Line of Duty is that apart from Hastings, you know, it's Hastings, Steve and Kate, but it's a unit. So yeah. what do you think is going on there, Tom? What kind of shift does Line of Duty mark in the sense that it's, it's never holding up a single iconic detective? It is a completely different type of drama. It, it wants us to invest in not just one person, in a, in a team. Um, so what is that? What is that about? I guess it's about investing in the structure itself or investing in, as you say, in the unit. Um, it makes me think of another, actually, I think pretty successful recent crime drama called Unforgotten. Oh, you know, I hate that. The, you don't like it? I don't it, like it. I was going to bring that up as an example of how they have way too much personal life. Well, they have too much personal life, but it's interesting, again, of the idea of the cold case. 
you know, and there is something I think that Line of Duty plays with as well of we are much more aware of the unsolved cases of the past. Like, you know, we're recording this on the very day that Madeleine McCann would have turned 18, you know, at the very moment when Fred West, uh, you know, the Fred West inquiry is leading to cafes being dug up again in Gloucestershire. There is something about the weight of old crimes that we carry around with us just in the media and just as talking points um, that I think it's definitely unforgotten taps into the kind of long shadow cast by these crimes, but even Line of Duty does as well. And I suppose, as I say, it's, and those crimes are of such an enormity that no one individual, you know, it would be naive to imagine like one single superhero can ever possibly, you know, deal with these issues. It is just a sense of kind of grinding, but necessary progress, you know, the wheel slowly turning and little by lit, little by little, maybe something like justice will come. And, um, but I think the people who are writing this know that, you know, as much as they might capture one particular criminal, actually writing all of the wrongs, including the historic wrongs, is a, you know, is a task that's too big for anything other than a unit, even, even one that's being horribly underfunded and everybody's trying to stab it in the back at the same time. That's really interesting. I think that's the thing about the, the, the interest in the cold case speaking to something fundamental in our culture. Um, and and the and the need of a kind of unit to get to the bottom of it. I think that that's interesting, and it actually implies more depth than perhaps I tend to fear is actually there. <laughs> um, so bringing it all together, Tom, which seems like a huge task. Can you say in a few words why the hype? All I'm going to say about the hype for this series in particular is that it gave devoted viewers of Line of Duty who've been growing season from season. And as I say, unfortunately, as it's gained more viewers, I think some of the quality has been lost. But it gave that fan base a reward for having slogged through the other five seasons. I mean, slog is the wrong word. I mean, I think they, they can be totally exhilarating. But the kind of the benefit, but also the weakness of this was the fact that it sort of managed to name check nearly every major character who had appeared at some point in the previous five seasons. You know, Jed rewarded you for remembering some of the intricate plot details from season three or season four. So I thought it was kind of drama made for fans and it gave the fans the reward for having kind of um, paid attention um, and having mastered those acronyms and you know, all of that stuff about the chiz that I believe that made all these people complain in the first you know, after the first episode was aired, the BBC was bombarded with complaints of saying, what's a chiz, what's a chiz? So, yeah, the kind of the, the, the strange acronyms are part of this kind of weird code language that those who are devoted viewers feel rewarded that they can decipher more and more of the series as it goes on. Um, what about for you, Zoe? Well, I think it's to do with something to do with a kind of national consciousness. It's like a habit. It's like a Brit there's a Britishness that is here in Line of Duty that British people like to indulge in and then, you know, use memes and tropes from. I think Line of Duty reinforces some aspect of British identity that is somehow reassuring. You know, it's fun, like if you to look in the mirror and see yourself reflected, even if it's, you know, through a massive filter. So I think it's become somehow because it's reached sort of national treasure status, but also because it's so rooted in a very particular British landscape and very, very British characters, although is Hastings from the Republic of Ireland or not? I don't know. Um, so I think there's a sort of reflectiveness there that we enjoy. And I think that, you know, when, when people make TED references in, in, on the front page of the news, that is something about 
what it means to be British and to enjoy it. And that's sort of what culture can do. It can allow you to have a bit of distance from it and then to tuck, to tuck yourself up in it all the more tightly. So I, that's the kind of sociological answer I'm going to give because I think you've covered everything else. So join us next time for a discussion of David Badil's recent book, Jews Don't Count.